this year, and um, we're, we're missing it. We're already missing it. Um, it was a great event, and we're going to tell you a little bit about that. One of the highlights for me working on VBS, and there were many of these, was uh, working with my friend Shane Boxnick. Uh, I've known Shane since he was 14 when I was at Russellville, and he was a teenager there, and he would be involved in works like this. And he got us started in the week because he was part of our um, stage crew. He was using his gifts and talents that God had given him to, uh, to, to, to be Ranger Shane. You saw him last week. Um, and by the way, for those of you who thought I was mad last week, um, gotcha! <laughs> there you go. I got it, Shane. I can act. I can act. I, uh, I got an A-plus for acting here from the drama coach. But, um, and you'll never trust anything that I say ever again. I know that. But uh, That's VBS. That's what we were doing. But we got started, those of us who were working the puppets and, and, and the, the, the acting and, and working with the kids, we got started with a story that Shane told that put it all in perspective for me. And he shared that story with us Wednesday night if you were here. And I know a lot of you couldn't be here or just weren't here on Wednesday night. I thought it was good for you to hear what Shane had to say. And so... I'm going to give him an opportunity to do that in just a minute. And I also want you to hear what our children had to say about VBS. And we're going to do that by uh, sharing with you this, uh, this video. We've got a lot of videos, by the way. If you want to see the skits, they're online. And then we made this video also to give you a sense. We're going to let the kids tell you about it in their own words. Let's, uh, let's show that. church so this was an opportunity for him to come to church that's it my favorite thing was all the things and eating food and doing the projects and and all this stuff and and then talking and the puppets and singing songs and doing all good things favorite thing about camp was all the free food and the time we did all that bear fighting. What about the bear clues and pictures of the waterfall? My favorite part about camp was meeting new friends and learning new stuff about Jesus. Um, the money one. Okay. Well, he gave his son's money. The first one had five. The second one had four. And the third one had one. The first one turned his into ten, and the second one turned his into four. And the other one just kept his and and buried his. And the master got mad. Wait, 
when he said, where's my money? The first one said I have 10, and the second one said I had four, and then the other one still had He buried this and told him what happened. So he got mad. Well, that's super cool. Um, hi, my name's Shane. If you don't know who I was, I was someone Chris was talking about. And I love Vacation Bible School. Like, love it. Um, I've been going to Vacation Bible School since I was probably my daughter's age three, probably. Um, and I, I just think it's awesome. Um, and I, I came across something that I would like to, to read with you. I'd like to read a passage from Facebook. Um, this is, uh, this is from Dina Jenkins that, uh, that, that, I, that fits really well with this. Um, she said at the end of a, a post, May God be honored as we watch him work through the seeds that have been planted. And that's awesome. Um, if, if you were a, a part of the team of BBS, stand up real quick. Just stand up right where you're at. If you helped with it in any way, you're going to start, stand, stand, stand. If you helped with it, if you helped with it, um, good. Um, please stand the whole time while I'm talking. I'm just going to sit down. <laughs> I was one really small part of a really big team, and there was a lot more people involved doing a lot of things. Um, and it's, it's a huge team that are trying to to teach the story, to teach the word of God um, to, uh, to, to kids. And when we're kids, we're passionate, we're excited, and it is just this raw energy and joy, and it's a beautiful thing. And every one of us remember the lessons uh, from, from our parents that, that are tattooed and linked into to our being because we have a foundation that we carry with us everywhere we go. And this is, this is what Vacation Bible School does in, in a big, big way, and I love it. Um, my mom told me a story uh, the week before Vacation Bible School about when I was, I was probably 14, 16 years old, and I was Guy Smiley. And if you are a connoisseur of Sesame Street, you know who Guy Smiley is. He's this wacky game show host, and he's just... Zany, and that's who I was for Vacation Bible School, and that's as pro- that's as biblical as I got probably in that Vacation Bible School session. Um, but there was this this guy that came up to my mom and said, "Hey, I just wanted to tell you, I remembered Shane uh, from Vacation Bible School, and it, it really made a difference in me. And this kid, he's not a kid anymore; he's a person." <laughs> uh, He's getting ready to go to Guatemala uh, to be a missionary, to go preach the word of God. And it was this little bitty seed that, that, that was planted that resonated. It's got nothing to do with me. It's about God working and doing and, and changing us. And it, I thought about that story, and I thought about Brady, uh, who, who donned the, the costume of Bible bear. And that bear was a game changer for these kids, a game changer. 
Like they wanted to be a part of that bear's life. They needed to know who he was and knew that he was going to protect them and help them and that he was good. And they wanted to be good. And it's a weird thing to think that that Guy Smiley and Bible Bear will stick with them their whole life. And God works in really weird ways. And he's working with all of us uh, just to tell his story. And, man, I want you to help with VBS. And that's not necessarily what this is about at all. It's just about, and God, God works in all of us in all of our weird little ways. And I like to talk and be goofy. And he uses that. And you like to do whatever you like to do. And God uses it. It's a wonderful thing. Shane sat those of us down who were Bible bear and blue bear and summer pudding and gumbo and even the devil. And uh, he told us that story. And it put everything in perspective for the week. And it's just, Shane is right on. It sticks with you. And uh, yes, God can use those characters to preach the gospel with these little ones. And all week long, I saw the little ones as seeds. They were seeds, and one day they were going to grow up into mighty oaks. They were going to grow up into um, a a full-formed person who would serve God with their gifts and talents. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about another project that I've been working on since February, March, or April, sometime in that time period. You may remember this phrase, join the resistance. That was the theme for our men's retreat. And so we had this idea of of overcoming sin and and making a stand and, and really developing, taking our discipleship to the to the highest level that we could. And we used verses that talked about resisting the devil. Well, when I was asked to do a class at uh, Lipscomb University, which I'll be teaching this Thursday in Nashville, I decided to go ahead and work with that theme. And so I've been living with this idea of the resistance and what it means for discipleship. But I didn't expect that it would be VBS that would bring it all together for me and what that meant. Because I'm, I'm trying to read the best materials. I'm going into history. I'm looking to the theologians. I'm, I'm delving into Scripture. I'm trying to find the pertinent Scriptures. And it's VBS that brings it all together. Because of the devil. The devil puppet, let's say. Okay, Not the devil, but the devil puppet. You see, every day at VBS, all of the kids, they figured this out right away. And if there's one thing they all learned, you heard some of their things that they learned. I'm really surprised that none of them mentioned the devil. And because every day they would mention the devil out here when Brent was leading singing. In fact, they were so on guard for the devil that often they would tell us that the devil was showing up when we didn't even know. And we were asking ourselves, did we miss a cue? Is the devil supposed to show up now? Because the devil would pop out of that fireplace that you saw up here last week. And so sometimes when the air conditioner would catch those drapes back there and blow them, some sharp-eyed kid would say, the devil, the devil's almost here. He wasn't. 
But they knew. They knew what to do. They knew a few things. They knew, number one, don't trust the devil. The devil's going to give Blue Bear bad advice. Everything, and, and it was like a game show because Blue Bear would listen to the devil and they, you would hear kids, you can hear it on the audio, they'd say, don't do it, don't do it, don't listen to the devil. They're just pleading with him not to give in to the devil. And every time the devil shows up, they'd be telling Mr. Brent, sing a song, sing a song, because they know that if they sing a happy song, the devil doesn't like that. Childish. Perhaps you're thinking, well, that's all, that's all very good, but childish. Is it? Or is it just so simple that that's the way it is with the real devil? That we don't need to trust him. We don't need to buy into his schemes. And you know, Scripture makes it that plain. And so I've been thinking about that, and that really is what our response to sin ought to be. When it comes to dealing with sin, we've come up with some very sophisticated ways of doing this. And maybe some of our sophisticated ways of doing this are are, are taking something that ought to be pretty simple and making it more complicated than it needs to be. Some of the common responses that we see to sin and evil in our lives and in the world, I'm listing these four, and if you think of some others, give it to me and I'll use it in my uh, lessons later on. But one of the things we do is we think we've got to warn people, and there's certainly some truth truth to that. We tell people, this is sin, you need to keep out, do not touch. And, and we come up with, with, with ways of putting boundaries on it, saying this is bad and, th- and this is not bad, this is bad, stay away from this. People always want me to preach sermons on something. Preach a sermon on this, why? Because people need to know it's wrong. I've been preaching sermons for over 20 years, and I can tell you this, I can't say, now I think that, that there's... There's a place for this, but I can't say that I've ever preached a sermon where somebody thought, realized, hey, I didn't really know that that was a sin. I mean something obvious. You need to preach a sin on how lying is a sin. You need to preach a sermon on how lying is a sin. And then suddenly somebody's going to wake up and say, you know, I hadn't considered that. You know, yeah, lying is bad. I better stop doing that. I did not have that information until you said something. No, really, sermons just reinforce what we ought to know is really what happens. There's, there's a place for warning, and really it's with teaching the children, or it's with teaching new Christians. But if you think about it, warnings don't always convict people of what is right and what is wrong. The Surgeon General has been putting a warning on cigarettes for, what, nearly 50 years now. And yet people are sitting there reading that even as they light up. And if you ask them, are you convinced that that's truth? Oh, yeah, I'm convinced of it. Oh, sure, I'm convinced. But you're going ahead and you're using tobacco. Yeah, well. But when you see somebody who has cancer because of cigarette smoking, or when you see somebody who's missing part of their jaw, like those commercials that get pretty graphic these days, now you might get convicted. Maybe there's more to our response to sin and dealing with sin than just warning everybody and trying to warn ourselves. Sometimes we want to make our response to sin the idea of self-denial. This is what I call the strategy of Lent. Now I know that we don't, not L-I-N-T, but L-E-N-T. We we don't, many of us, we don't practice Lent. If you come from a a, a different background, say a, a Catholic or a mainstream background, you might 
you might have, be familiar with how Lent was practiced. But the, the idea, and you, and you know this, at least from our culture, is that for 40 days, you're going to give something up. You're going to deny yourself something. So it might be uh, chocolate, or it might, you know, it, it could be anything. It might be television. You're going to deny yourself. It's, it's kind of a form of fasting. And sometimes I think we do that with sin. And what we do is we say, now look, I know you enjoy these things, but we're going to ask you to give them up when you become a Christian. I know these things look great, and these things would be nice, and it would be good to do all of this, but we're going to ask you that when you become a Christian, to give all that up. And so, what we end up with is, we end up turning sin into the forbidden fruit that looks really great. And if you think about some of the things we do with that, it shows up in our marketing Even in marketing that you see today, people talk about sinful indulgences. It's not enough that it's an indulgence. It's sinful too. And when you hear that, we're sort of innocent about the whole thing and say, oh, boy, that's great. And and, uh, they they show these these massive desserts that have chocolate sauce and ice cream all over them, and they call it chocolate sin or something like that. You know, we can joke about all that. And, oh, you know, that's not good for you. Better give that up. Once in a while, it's okay. But is sin really something that can be moderated? I mean, if you think about the way we handle it, though, we say, hey, look, I know that you enjoyed your life in the world, you know, uh, having uh, physical pleasures with, uh, you know, guys and girls and dating and all that and all the things that come along with it but when you become a christian you got to give that up i know you enjoy drinking and i know that drinking oh it seems like a lot of fun and maybe even the recreational use of marijuana and all that but but when you become a christian you got to give all that up because i know it's a lot of fun but you got to give it up and what we do is we turn our discipleship into a form of self-denial that we're all giving up something that's good but when you read scripture none of this stuff is good It never glamorizes sin. Now, they can feel good, it can seem good, but it's not good. It's an evil that has warped God's creation. It's an evil that has tainted the good. Sexual sins are sins, not because sex is a sin, but because the misuse of it, and outside of its place in marriage, it becomes sinful. It has its place where it's good. Food is good. But when it becomes gluttony or when it becomes uh, something that, 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 that we hoard or something that we don't share, something that we're not thankful for, then sin enters into it. Anyway, I, I want to move us towards a different response. But I, wanna, I want you to see these responses and I want you to see that they're, they're, they're not enough. By the way, let me give you scripture on that second one. In Colossians... Paul talks about a form of righteousness, and it's kind of a false form, it's kind of a front, that when we put rules on things, do not touch, do not handle, abstain from this, that that looks like righteousness, but Paul says it's really no good for developing spiritual maturity. Thirdly, sometimes we decide to go countercultural in our response to sin. We see that in groups where it's very obvious, like the Amish. I guess modern technology is sinful, so they've, they've decided that they're not going to do that. I remember growing up, growing up, I had a lot of friends who were Jehovah Witness. And I didn't know this, but holidays were wrong in some sense. 
This may be my first interaction with religious theology because I often felt it was a bit of an injustice that my friends couldn't have cookies on the, at the Christmas party at school. So I had a few of them that I would smuggle cookies over to them. And um, I don't know, I guess maybe I was asking them to violate their family faith, so I'm really not sure where the, what was right and wrong and all that. But there wasn't a lot of conviction for my friends in not eating Christmas cookies. I mean, it was just the way that their people did things. It becomes a righteousness rooted in legalism and tradition. And I'm, listen, in, our, in, in, my, in this tradition, in churches of Christ, and I know we're trying to be non-denominational, but we have a tradition as well. But we've done this, where we talk about following the old paths. Not a bad idea, but why? Well, we don't know, just because they're old. Okay, that's the way we've always done it. And if we don't know why something is good or something's more righteous, then we ought to rethink it. We ought to rethink what it is that we're trying to do, how we're trying to live. Yeah, some of you are old enough to remember that we used to describe ourselves as a peculiar people. You don't hear that much anymore. But we're a peculiar people. We're countercultural. This is why we don't go to dances. That one was hard for me. Not that I wanted to go to dances. I really didn't care. When I went to dances at school, I was kind of like Fonzie on Happy Days, and I know that some of you are too young to understand that, but you know, he wouldn't dance. He'd just stand there. That was me. I didn't enjoy dancing. What I couldn't understand is people said, no, no, we're a peculiar people. We don't go to dances. I thought, why? Because, and they would tell me, because here's all the things that are wrong with it. Well, the thing was, in my experience, all the good kids went to the dance. The bad kids were out underneath the bridge somewhere by the lake getting drunk and stoned. So I thought, well, wait, so I'm supposed to not go to the dance? But that's where the bad kids go. See, there was an idea of being different, but there was no basis for why. Sometimes we've looked at resistance as the proper response to sin, but we define resistance in a just-say-no sort of a way. When somebody asks you to do drugs, just say no. Well, why? Well, because it's wrong. Why? Because it is. Just resist it. Just say no. And sometimes we do that with sin. Don't do this. Why? Because we said not to. Don't do this. Why? Well, didn't you hear the preacher? He preached a sermon. It had a bunch of warnings. He gave you a list of things not to do. And when people's righteousness is based on what I preach, then we're in trouble. Because if it's just my list of things, that's not good enough. But if it's God's word, if it's the truth, then that's what our righteousness needs to be formed on. It's not just because some leader in the church says, don't do this. It's because God directs us in a different way of life. We think of resistance as, again, as resisting something good. I'm going to resist temptation. Oh, that temptation. It's so strong and it looks so good. And it looks good to my eyes and it feels good to my body. And it seems good to my mind and my heart. But I've got to resist it. Why? Because I've got to say no. Because if you're righteous, if you really want to be righteous, you're going to say no and you're going to abstain to everything. And believe it or not, we have a form of monasticism. We have a form of, that means being a monk, that if you give up certain things, you attain a higher level of Christianity than ordinary folks. Because ordinary folks, well, you know, they're going to come here every Sunday and apologize for all the bad stuff that they did over the last six days. 
And sometimes we want to do that with our preachers and our church leaders. Now, you're not supposed to do this. And if you've ever been around me and said that, you know what I'm going to say to you. I'm going to say, why do I have a different standard of righteousness than you do? I understand that much more is expected of me. I understand that I might be more visible than some of you. But the truth is, Christ demands the same righteousness out of all of us. Christ demands the same type of discipleship out of all of us. He does not have different degrees or standards of righteousness. You cannot be an ordinary basic Christian, but then if you really want to go further with this, you can become a super advanced Christian. There's no such thing in discipleship. That when we're following Christ, we're following Christ. You're either following Christ or you're not following Christ. Now that doesn't mean that you're going to be doing it perfectly. It means are you growing in your discipleship of Christ. So why, what is going on in Scripture when it says resist the devil? If it's not just saying no, then what is it? Well, maybe we need to look at a different definition of resistance. Think about that devil and what those kids were doing. When they saw the devil, they knew that this is a guy who just needs to go away. When they saw that devil puppet, they were saying, we need him out of here. We're going to fight back against him. We're going to sing him away. We're going to demand that we're all sweet and nice and we're going to be good and we're going to do the right thing and we're going to help each other. And when a sinner's in the way, we're going to stop and pick him up. But when the devil's in the way, what are we going to do? We're going to run right over him. And what a simple child's view that does actually seem to be spot on. Listen to what Scripture says. James 4, 7, submit yourselves then to God. There's no mention here of different levels of discipleship, different standards of righteousness. Rather, everybody is to submit themselves to God. When you submit yourself to God, when you're devoting yourself to God, you resist the devil and he will flee from you. We've got evidence that in the uh, early centuries that when people would go to be baptized, in their baptistries, they would have some, in some of them, there would be a painting of the devil, some, some image of the devil. And when people would go to be baptized, they were submitting themselves to God. And you know what they'd do with that picture of the devil? They'd spit on it. Now, how would you like to bring spitting into worship? But do you see what they're doing? They're saying, I renounce the devil. I renounce all of this. They're not turning their back on something wonderful and glamorous and indulgent. They're turning their back on something wicked and horrid that tears up lives. That tears up the world that God made. Look at 1 Peter 5, 8-9. through 9. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Boy, I know that's hard to resist, a lion that wants to devour you. I know it just seems so indulgent and pleasurable, but when you become a Christian, you've got to give up being devoured by lions. Are you, are you, are you sensing my sarcasm? Am I making a point? Sin here, the, the evil one, is not described as something wonderful and tempting and good. It's described as a lion that tears people apart. You know, we were all shocked and horrified weeks ago when that baby fell into that, 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 uh, that gorilla pit. The gorilla's tearing, you know, pulling this kid around and, you know, and all the controversy that come out after that. Can you imagine if it had been a lion? How horrible would that be? 
And I know that's a horrible graphic image right now, but I'm trying to get it across to you that when Scripture is talking about the devil being a roaring lion seeking to devour someone, this is a graphic image. This is sin. You resist it. You stand up against it. You take a stand. You do something to stop the lion that is prowling around trying to devour people. You stand, look at that next phrase, you stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Sin and the struggle against sin is described as suffering. Sin is There is some sort of devouring force out there that's tearing people apart, and we've got to take a stand. We've got to resist. If we went for a different definition of resistance, maybe we would have a new view of discipleship. C.S. Lewis. Shane and I have that in common. He's one of our favorites. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, and I'll tell you, just other than the the Bible, you need to be reading Mere Christianity. I, I highly recommend it. C.S. Lewis has an imaginative way of looking at the world, and he describes things in a way that I think would make a lot of sense to those of us in the 21st century. He's closer to our century than most of our best Christian writers. And in Mere Christianity, he describes this world and the struggle against sin in this way. He says, enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity, then, is the story of how the rightful king has landed on these shores, and he's calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Have you ever thought about the fact that as Christians in this world, we are saboteurs? I mean, sometimes I think we see ourselves as proponents of the status quo. But C.S. Lewis says not at all. Now remember, he's writing in the middle of the 20th century. He's writing, and and, and a lot of mere Christianity is being written and delivered during World War II. So the people are very familiar with this, this concept of the resistance in Europe against the evil of the Nazis. And saboteurs are those in enemy occupied territory, the resistance, who are involved in a campaign of sabotage against the enemy. He says that as Christians, we know that the rightful king is Jesus Christ. And he's appeared to us, and we know the truth. Meanwhile, the devil, the evil one, runs this world. But we're going to engage in a campaign of sabotage. Now, what does that sabotage look like? What does that that type of resistance look like? Well, it's a courageous fight. It's a noble fight, and it means standing our ground and doing risky things. When we think of movements of resistance, we might think of the Civil Rights Movement, which was a nonviolent movement of of resistance in the 1960s. Which, by the way, I want to give you this as as a freebie. When the new atheists today in the 21st century, when they say things like, the world would be better off with no religion, the world would certainly be better off with Christianity, and they want to make that case that Christianity has only contributed to bad things in history, things like the Crusades, things like hatred. Really? The civil rights movement is rooted in the Christian ideas and the sermons of Martin Luther King. If you've ever been to the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, that's where it got started. The ideas are coming out of the prophets 
It's coming out of God's Word. I would say that that's an argument that Christianity does contribute to good things and righteous things in this world. But you see a form of resistance in that. Taking a stand against what's wrong. Choosing not to hate, but choosing not to accept the status quo or the structures of injustice or sin or hatred. One of the stories that I've come across in all of this reading is one that is probably unfamiliar. But it's the story of the Danish resistance. When you think of the resistance movements in World War II, some of them were certainly not violent. The French resistance is thought of most of all I mean, they were, they were occupied. You just watch the movie Casablanca, and that'll, that'll give you an idea of the resistance. But most people haven't heard about the Danish resistance movement. It's because there wasn't a lot to it. In fact, when the Germans came in and, and, and took over Denmark, the king and the leaders of Denmark said, hey, it's all yours. They just said, come on in. You, you be nice. Don't cause us any problems. We're okay with this. We don't want any trouble. They just sort of accepted it. This is why the story is interesting to me. Because most people decided, we don't want to put up with the struggle. We don't want to do this. We'll just go ahead and let the Nazis come in and take over Denmark. But there were some preachers who said this is not right. They knew what Nazi Germany was doing. And it was the sons of a preacher who started the Danish resistance movement, and they were teenagers. These kids that are pictured, these ordinary kids pictured here in front of their little school building. In fact, they were so inspired by what was happening with the resistance movement in Norway, and they were so inspired by people like Winston Churchill, that they called their group the Churchill Club. And they were going to resist the Nazis. This group of school kids, what can a bunch of teenagers do? Well... They became saboteurs. And they would go and the Germans would put up road signs to their barracks. And the kids would take those signs and turn them around. And they would go out and they'd put graffiti on the, on the German barracks and on the shops of people who were sympathetic to the Germans. They would cut down the phone lines. They didn't have any weapons to fight back with. And besides, there weren't very many of them. But they thought, if we can just cause some kind of trouble and disrupt the enemy... We want to do the right thing. And it was tough for them, and they got in some trouble. But they were taking a stand for what was right, even when the adults and the grown-ups weren't. Eventually, it led to a full-blown resistance army, and yet you look at these resistance fighters. They really You can't really call them an army. Here they are. They're just regular guys in their suits. They've got these helmets on. They look out of place. And they've got, they've got rifles that they've probably picked up from who knows where. And eventually, and this is the monument at the Danish Resistance Museum. They had a milk truck. And they fitted it out like a battle wagon. And they put free Denmark on that. And they would take that thing into battle with them. And you would look at them and you would say, these guys don't have a chance. But that's not what mattered. What mattered is they were going to do the right thing. And they were going to resist the enemy that had occupied their territory. Now here's what I want to ask you. If if that's a definition of resistance, does this give us a different way of looking at scriptures like James and 1 Peter when it says resist the devil? 
Let me ask you, what would this look like? And this is something we'll talk about in the weeks ahead. But let me ask you, where you're at every day, you don't have to become a a commando. You don't have to become a uh, special forces, black op, um, OSS spy fighter or anything like that. But just you as an everyday person in your everyday garb, in your everyday job, what if you right there are called upon to be a saboteur for God? Someone who joins the resistance against the way the world is not supposed to be. What that means is you and I have to remind one another, and sometimes we're going to have to get the kids to remind us, that there is an enemy out there. And this enemy is the leader of dark forces. He's the leader of evil. The kind of evil that is not good and indulgent and tempting and wonderful, but the kind of stuff that tears people apart. And it means we're going to remind each other of that. And we're going to remind each other that this is not the world that God intended. But we know the truth about what God did want for this world and what He intends to do. That we're going to do what Ephesians 6 says. We're going to put on the full armor of God. And we're going to understand that God has this great plan. And we're going to sing a happy song in our hearts every day because we refuse to jump into the way of the world, and we're going to resist it. Think about that. You know, every act of worship, when we gather together and worship, is in some way a form of resistance. Every time you and I come together and we worship here, when we stand up right here, you're going to think that this is the time where, well, this is the time where people who don't have it all together have to go and ask for prayers or come forward. Really? I hope we don't think that. I hope we don't even assume that. Find that thought in your head, cast it out, and resist it because that's one of the devil's schemes. This is the time when we all stand and we declare a resolve. A resolve to stand against evil, to stand together with one another, and to stand for Christ. So let's stand and let's join the resistance. Stand up. Let's sing. If you do need prayers, we invite you to come and share that need. We want to support one another.